0: You're listening to The Blind Stealing the Blinds, a podcast by students of the game for students of the game. Join Dell and BJ in conversations about poker theory and bridging the gap between theory and application.
1: We're all in this together. This week's topic Zach Elwood, the man who reads people. Hey, Dell, how's it going this week?
2: It's going really good. Had a pretty decent week. I uh, took a little money off the. Uh, patrons at the Brook in Seabrook, New Hampshire, and I'm going to be playing there a little more over the next few weeks. So uh, if anybody wants to come and play against me, try to take some of my money, they can. How are you doing, BJ?
1: I'm doing great this week. I finally got into a regular golfing group. I've been looking for a group to join. I walk on as a single and as catch as catch can. If I get on, great. If I don't, I just stay behind and practice on the green, which by the way, everyone needs to do anyway. So it's a win-win. Yesterday, I finally got invited to join a group of like 8 or 12 people. They have two, three, four tea times. They play for some money. It's a good group of guys. And they book it. They hit and they get. I have never walked more quickly on the golf course in my life. And here I am carrying my clubs, walking 18 holes. And I was so dead tired at the end of the round yesterday. I couldn't play today. I slept so poorly, and I had to do so much pain management, I couldn't even go to the poker room. So I did nothing. I went to bed, woke up, ate breakfast, took a nap, and now I'm ready. So we're going to have an awesome podcast today. I'm really excited because we have Zach Elwood on the show. Zach Elwood is known in the poker community for his trilogy of Poker Tells books. His first book was Reading Poker Tells, which has been called by many to be the best book on the subject and which has been translated into eight languages. Zach has served as a poker tells consultant for two WSOP main event final table players, as well as many other players. Outside of poker, his research into fake and deceptive social media accounts has been featured in the Washington Post, the New York Times, and BuzzFeed. He also has a psychology-focused podcast called People Who Read People. Zach Elwood, welcome to the show. Hey guys, thanks for having me. It's great having you on. Oh, honored to be here.
2: It really is awesome, because when I think about it, when I first started to play poker, a lot of people don't want to really put the effort into learning mechanics. And I guess that I fell into that group, too. And I wanted that secret of tells of what can give me an advantage at the table just by looking at my opponents. You know, when I started playing, the book that was the book to read at that time was Caro's Book of Tells. It, it has a lot of valuable information. You know, I don't want to say anything bad about it. It had a lot of valuable information, and it even had a system in it for trying to define other players' tells and tracking them. But it was very clunky, and it lacked, in my opinion, in explanation. There's this period of years where every time a tells book came out, I went out and I bought it, or somebody would post a video on tells and I'd watch it. And there was never any really good information there. And it's amazing how many people put out books with bad information. And then you come out with reading poker tells. And this is where I think the game starts to change. And it's amazing what you did there because you you had a framework in place. You go deep into the explanations and you make it very digestible for people to use. First of all, thank you for that. But it's been a few years since I read the book and I started to read it and prep for you being on this week. And it's like I'm reading a whole new book. It's one of those things that should be studied as opposed to just read and forgotten. And I don't think I did that very well, but I'm glad to have you here and talk about it. What do you feel like was the big difference your books made?
0: Yeah, I would say, you know, when I wrote that book, it was like a pretty long thought process because I used to play for a living back in like the early poker boom days, right? You know, I was, I was playing for a living in like 2004 to 2007 timeframe. That's when I was doing it pretty much full time during the poker boom. I was always thinking, well, somebody, you know, somebody much more well-known than me is going to write a good book on tells because like you said, Caro's book is great. There's a reason it's a classic, but it's also, I think many people would say it, it doesn't have a lot of nuance and it's, it's very simplistic. It it focuses on like the most amateur players who have like the most easy to read tells. And I always thought there were things I saw and things I talked to other poker players about that I hadn't seen written about. And mainly it came down to a better structure, a better mental framework for how to think about tells and to like classify tells into, for example, Post vet tells are very different than behavior that you see when somebody's waiting for somebody to act. You know, there's just these different categories of tells where something might mean something completely different depending on the situation. Around like 2007, I was thinking, well, I'd like to write a book because I just haven't seen these things out there. Like Joe Navarro had a book that was co-written with Helmuth, but I thought it was a very bad book for a few reasons. And then you know years passed, and then I, I hadn't seen anybody do that work, and it wasn't like I thought I was a poker tells genius. It was just like I, I was just surprised that I hadn't seen some stuff that I thought was kind of basic, and relatively untalked about in a book form. That was what motivated me, and I finally got around to doing it. You know, years later, it started in like 2010 and got it out in like 2012. And I was like, well, let's see uh, how people respond to it because I don't know, maybe people will be like, this sucks, and but then many people, amateur and. Professional level players really liked it, so that encouraged me to do more. But I think what people responded to was you know it wasn't even so much the specific behaviors because I feel like a lot of a good amount of stuff in that first book, especially was it wasn't groundbreaking the the specific tells some of it was new, but I feel like the thing that made a difference was just the way of thinking about the tells and putting them into these uh, situational categories that then that's what a lot of people told me they responded to in, in, in a better way of like understanding how the situation impacts uh, how the tells are displayed.
2: Yeah. So another thing, the notion of how are we going to use those tells moving forward? And you said a lot of people said that you didn't go into that a lot. Well, you have exploiting poker tells, which does go into it. I mean, I don't think people even understand that you've you've written
0: three books on this topic, correct? A lot of people don't know I have the other ones because the first one was so well known. The other next two, which I'm actually much more proud of because it was like a more I felt like I, I put more work or, or, or reach better understandings, especially after uh, doing like consultation for like some, some pretty high level players and talking to them and, and stuff like that. I, I was able to synthesize that stuff into I think better explanations for things. And and I, I reached better conclusions about things later. So yeah, those are actually, I actually recommend them more. I still think the first book is quality because it, it, it establishes kind of these frameworks of thinking about the situations, but uh, yeah. And, and there's a reason I, I basically said, well, I'm pretty much done writing books on this because I feel like I've said 95% of what I want to say without like a lot more research or something. There's not much for me to say. I I still work on like the the videos and and some occasional blog posts and such. But I felt like the last two books really said a lot of what I have to say.
2: Do you ever just chuckle when somebody says, well, you didn't tell me how to use these tells? And you say, you know, there's there's a second book you can purchase.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, I think there is more to say there. It's like, if if I was going to... And one day I may do this, I might go back and include like in the last book, a better thing of like, well, when you sit down at the table, what are the specific things that you should be looking for that at least I find useful to look for initially, the priorities of things to look for? And we can talk a little bit about that practical stuff if you want. And one reason I didn't delve into it too much in the the books is because I think it can vary so much depending on what your preferences are. Because I feel like, like I say in the books, it's like how everyone uses tells or what they notice is, is a lot depending on their own like preferences and how they parse information. So for example, like some people are really like to stare at other people at the table and they're gonna get different tells than I would get because of the way they interact with people. So there's a lot of things that depend on how you act at the table too, which is why I was like, even if I made a list of the way that I like sit down at a table and, and the things I pay attention to first. I could do that. and I think it would be helpful. But it's also like, I kind of like the idea of giving people the room to explore and find their own things that they find useful. Because I feel like somebody like Phil Ivy, who's I have no doubt is much better reading people than I do. He probably has a completely different way of sitting down and taking some of the same kinds of information, but like focusing on different things in different spots and things like that. There's definitely room to talk about the priorities of things to notice. But uh, that's one reason I didn't delve into the details of like, do this and this and this when you sit down. You know, I want, I want to give people some of that freedom.
1: One thing I really appreciate about that is as a process guy, I like processes that speak to the way that I operate. If there's a process that speaks to the way my wife, who is a raving introvert, operates, it doesn't really work for me. And having a process helps me systematize my way of thinking. For myself to get the biggest bang for the buck that I need to in that situation. You make it personal, is what I'm really trying to say. Mm -hmm. You take this pretty esoteric subject of behavior and distill it into the realm of poker and distill it further into what works for you specifically as the player at the table. So I'm curious if there's anything in your research or your writing on this topic that surprised you. You came into it thinking you were going to find A. And you ended up finding Z. I'd say the biggest
0: moment like that, and let me know if you do want me to circle back to like the things that I think are most valuable when you sit down, because I think that is a big question. Oh, absolutely. I would say the biggest moments I had of of like myself learning things that were surprising was for the verbal poker tells book. So when I when I thought about what I, what I wanted to do for my next book, because I thought there was a lot more to to delve into with poker tells, and when when people encouraged me to do more, they thought the first book was good. So I I wanted to delve into the the verbal stuff because I really felt like there was so much there that wasn't understood or you know was hardly studied at all. Like I had a few things about verbal stuff in my first book, but it was just like a very cursory touching on a few items. There just seems to be so much detail there, and I was also inspired by the statement analysis realm of field and like criminal interrogation and, and and forensic analysis where they'll analyze people's like written and verbal statements for like indicators of someone being deceptive. And a great book for that was uh Mark McClish's book, I Know You Are Lying, which used a bunch of real true crime cases and analyzed people's statements and such. And I wanted to do something like that for poker. So I spent eight months full time. Like I literally worked 10 hours a day just on researching, like watching a bunch of televised stuff, taking notes, playing and taking notes, put all these uh, logs and and uh, markers in a database of like people's statements and what they said when, and I had like thousands of statements and would tag them with different tags. I kind of went into that thinking, well, this will just take me a few months. Like I kind of know what I want to say, but the more I delved into it, the more complex it seemed to me. And the more I found there was more to talk about. And I'd say the big thing that came out of that was this concept of like bluffers, not wanting to make what I call, weak hand statements, which is any statement that weakens someone's, a speaker's range of hands, right? So that could be something really obvious, like someone saying, I'm bluffing. Like that's what I call a weak hand statement because it's weakening the perceived range of their hands. But it could also be very indirect in terms of somebody betting and saying, when the other person doesn't call them, saying something like, oh, I knew you didn't have much. So it's like they're weakening their own range by implying that they didn't need much to bet because they knew the other person was weak. So it's, there's this range of statements indirect and direct that I called weekend statements. And when I really started paying attention to that, and it almost seemed like obvious in hindsight, because it's like, well, of course, bluffers wouldn't want to weaken their range. But when you actually started digging into how all that stuff showed up, it was like, it became really super crystal clear in a way that just was not to me and, and was not to other people too. Because I, when I've shared that information, how I put it in the book about how these things show up and all the different ways they show up, I've had high stakes players tell me like, that information alone was just worth so much money because it allowed them to see things they hadn't seen before too. And, and things I hadn't seen before, just the mental framework for how you think about that class of statements. That was huge for me because I was like, in hindsight, yeah, it, it almost seemed obvious. Of course, bluffers wouldn't want to weaken the range, but then it was just a matter of recognizing all those subtle spots too. And so that was a big game changer. And that, and that alone was like worth the price of the amount of time I put into it and, and, and kind of categorizing those things that and so it was surprising to me basically how something I went into thinking I kind of understood the dynamics, but then like learned a lot in the process. There was a lot of complexity into like when those statements were more likely to be meaningful. It's like somebody saying that early in a hand when the stakes are really low, right? It is much less meaningful when they say it later in the hand, things like that. Or or there might be, you know, specific spots pre-flop where they're like three betting or four betting where those things start to be more meaningful again. So it was like getting a sense of the dynamics of like when the situations were likely to be meaningful. So yeah, it was it was real educational, which is why I always tell people like, I'm very confident these books are valuable because I learned a
1: lot writing them. I think it's fascinating that you came into it with one conception and that really crystallized later as you were doing the research. And then it just became crystal clear to you and others that certain things were true. And I think the opposite holds true where a lot of players will see things that they think are true that they aren't. Mm-hmm. Essentially, they read too much into it. Mm-hmm. Oh, I saw this one behavior. They twitch their eye. Well, that means XXX, whatever. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could also speak to that as well.
0: Yeah, I think there's, I mean, I think that gets to be, you know, the fact that people they have very distorted views of, of poker tells in various ways, or they can think poker tells are much more important than they are. Or they can think poker tells are much less important than they are. But yeah, there's definitely that that bias that that kind of seeing monsters under the bed kind of thing where they're some people are just looking for an excuse to call or something. So like, oh, he looked a little uh, you know a little strange there, or he he blinked his eyes too much. So I'm going to call him. You know, it's like I think that actually gets at a, a fundamental misunderstanding about what I call big bet situations in poker, where how people use poker tells badly is when people make big bets. A lot of times they're just looking for excuses to call somebody, and what actually what actually is the truth with Someone making a big bet is like you're much more likely to to get a read of relaxation. And someone having having a strong hand, it's it's actually pretty rare to get a to indicator of weakness from somebody who's making a big bet. So I think that that alone is a big misunderstanding. It's just like because bluffers in general are going to be trying to look as stoic as possible, and most people when they're even when they're relaxed are also trying to look as stoic as possible. It it just happens that sometimes when people are relaxed, they do things a little differently and are a little bit more. Uh, loose in various ways, even subtle ways, like how they move their eyes around a little bit more loosely, things like that. I think that gets into, yeah, the the mistaken idea that people have that like, oh, I'm going to be able to spot these uh, signs of anxiety from somebody b- making a big bet and use that to make a big call. It's just like a, a fundamental misunderstanding of how often those things happen.
2: Before we get too far beyond it, I do want to circle back to what you think are the most important things
0: to look for when you're at the table. Sure. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, I, I'd say I think when I first sit down, I think paying attention to the people you think are A, the the worst players, B the the loosest players, because you're more likely to be in pots with them, you know. So you're more likely to actually be in a situation where you're gonna use that information. So focusing on those players is important. If there's somebody at the table who you think is quite skilled and is very stoic, in other words, it doesn't pay much attention to focus on them, your time would be better spent, you know, when it comes to tells anyway better spent uh, thinking about the other players who are who are looser or worse or whatever then the other factor is studying the people directly to your left because they have the most impact on you and a lot of times you can get little reads of things where like if you start keying into how the person directly to your left for example looks at their cards and like say they look say most of their hands when they're, you know, when they're folding, they're, they're looking at them and pretty loose and like, you know, looking around the room and their, their body is, is pretty loose and and relaxed. But then like sometimes you see them look at their cards and they just like sit there really kind of tense waiting, you know, it's a, it's a sign that uh, they might be waiting to, you know, they have a stronger hand uh, for example. So those kinds of clues can clue you into like where you might've been going to, going to make a loose raise in in late position, but you see something like that behind you and it changes your mind. It's like a borderline spot or whatever. Uh, those kinds of things. Um, so I'd say that's why it's it's important to pay attention to the people to your left. If they're looser and and not good, that's even more of a bonus. I'd say uh, don't be afraid to keep notes on your uh, on your phone. You know, nobody knows what notes you're keeping. I think sometimes people don't want to seem serious, which is a good thing. They don't want to seem too studious at the poker table. But I think you can be you can be relaxed and joking around and just still keeping notes that nobody sees. And the kinds of things I would I would focus on. On the quicker side, when I first sat down, is when people make big bets, notice their eyes. Like what, what are their eyes doing? The tells related to eye contact and how loose their eyes move around and and how much they blink are very important. Cause I think it's it's less examined, you know. Like people focus on like, oh, if they're staring at you, it means X or whatever. But I think they within the the eye movement, eye contact kind of stuff, there's a lot of subtlety that people just aren't aware of. So for example, like bluffers are more likely to, whether they look at at their opponent or look at a table, they're more likely to not move their eyes around much. Whereas somebody who's more relaxed, signs of relaxation include, you know, moving around looser more generally anyway. And so how loosely they move their their eyes around or like they might make eye contact and break it a few times. Like those are all signs of somebody being relaxed. The fact that they're just kind of loose in these like subtle ways, uh, even if they might be very kind of stoic, unreadable, like if you were to just glance at them, but they might have like these little signs of of relaxation. So I think the eye stuff is important. And I also think it's important to, it it can vary so much person to person, like some, you know, the the thing that Carol wrote about, I think was bluffers were more likely to stare at you. And I think that's a a simplistic framing because in actuality, I think people can vary, like some people are more likely to stare at you when they're bluffing, but other people are more likely to stare at you when they're relaxed. And I actually think the second one is, is more common because your average recreational player, when they have a strong hand, enjoys seeing their opponent you know, in a spot where they know they've got them. right. So they actually enjoy looking at them more. So that's what I mean by it can vary. You know, It, it just varies by someone's tendencies. And some people just are going to be, probably a lot of people are going to be hard to read in those, those aspects because they just don't have that strong a pattern either way. But I think those are the kinds of things it's really valuable to look for. Bed timing is huge. You know, I think, I think bed timing is really up there. Like, so if you, if you're noticing, you know, if you're just sitting down and and noticing it's the river and somebody gets checked to and the guy bets immediately start keying into like the players you've decided are worth studying that, that seem like they have variations in, in what they do, right? Like, so if, if somebody's like snap betting on the river, that's that that alone will be a sign like, well, that's an interesting behavior. I wanna I wanna I'm gonna study this person more than somebody who was like much more stoic and balanced in their behaviors. Cause so the more you key into these kind of unusual imbalanced behaviors, like a person snap bets once, but then another time he waits a whole minute or something, the more imbalanced they seem. The more likely it becomes that you're going to notice something interesting from them. So bet timing is huge. You know, a a big bet timing thing in a lot of cash games is like somebody raises pre flop, another person three bets, and that first raiser just kind of snap calls. Like that, that snap call is so indicative of a hand like pocket tens, pocket jacks. If if they had queens or better, they would at least consider you know, raising for a few seconds, even if they ended up calling or if they had ace king, they would at least consider for a few seconds before, you know, what they were going to do before calling. So these kinds of snap decisions, snap bets, snap calls are just so important and and noticing the baseline of players. So like if a player is like consistently making snap bets or snap calls, like it starts to lose its meaning because they're just kind of a quirky weird character or something. But like picking up like a person's baseline, it's like, oh, usually they're waiting you know a few seconds a standard amount before making a decision, but like every once in a while they'll make a snap decision, so keying into like what it probably means for them. those are the ones that just come to mind, but like I said yeah i think I think there would be value in me like laying out those things in a specific way i think it I think it would help people and and people have told me that like I've had people read my books and actually make their own guide of like here's what I do first, you know they and multiple people have sent that to me where they're like, here's my own guide of like the things that I think are valuable when I sit down to study. And I'm like, oh, that's really cool. And and it varies what people have sent me, of course.
2: I'd say another good thing about everything I'm hearing you say and everything I've read in your books is that there's no definites. There's no, this definitely means this. And and, because like when you're talking about the speed of betting, I bet fast a lot, but that's because I have a lot of my post-flop game figured out. So I know what I'm doing on certain boards and I know what I'm doing facing certain bets. I don't have to waste a lot of time considering it. I do think it's very individual. You know, I mean, there are certain things, there's certain things we can look that are common to the player pool. But even within that, it's going to be individually based. So that's very
0: good. Yeah, I think that gets into, I mean, the the basic fact that you are pretty unlikely to, like like I say in my books, it's like you might only base a decision on something like twice in an eight hour session or something. It's like that. that's a pretty common, you know, assuming you're playing pretty decent opponents, it might be pretty rare you actually use a thing because A, you might not have time to feel like you've, you know, have much information on people and B, you're not going to play that many hands, especially, and you might not play hands against people that who you feel like you're reading pretty well. So for all these reasons, it is pretty rare. And I like to emphasize that because I feel like some people are like, oh, I'll, I'll be reading people all the time or something. But I think uh, the other aspect in there too, is like with a decent understanding of like general behaviors. I feel like sometimes, you know, the the better you get at this, the quicker you can kind of classify someone like with a few hands, you've seen them play as like, oh, I get a general sense of like how this person fits into the, the general population framework. And also, even when you don't get to see hands at showdown, even just using the fact that, for example, the like most big bets are much more likely to be value bets than bluffs. If you see someone only get into a few hands and and have certain things that they do, you can kind of assume that a good amount of that was uh, value bets. For example, this is just to say that sometimes and so much of using tells is so is not exact anyway. And a lot of it is using it when you're kind of on the fence anyway. So it's kind of like, well, I get a sense that this general tell is probably you know likely for this person uh, because I've pegged them as you know pretty recreational or whatever. So it's like when you're in a spot where like you feel like your decision could go either way, you can, you can make use of that, even if you know like it's just one, you know, making it a bit more likely based on, you know, what you've seen so far. And I think that gets into how high level players, high stakes players who are playing very tough competition make use of tells too, where it's like they might be basing, they make so many uh, close decisions because they're playing, you know, strong competition. Uh, even a little bit of behavioral information can go a long way because it's like, well, if I know this is even like, you know, 55, 60% reliable, I believe it is, that's a long way in a spot where you're like, you know, they've put me in a decision where like, I should be kind of equal between calling and folding anyway with this range of hands or whatever. It should be difficult. Like it's natural that it's, it's that you wouldn't be often basing decision on on this stuff.
1: I really appreciate how you were mentioning different ways we can approach it and things to look for and how to look for them, specifically using notes on your phone. I take notes on my phone for player profiles concerning like hands that came to showdown, what the ranges might be, how they might play loose, aggressive, whatever. But I have not yet figured out how to do it effectively for behavioral tells. And so I really appreciated the insights you gave me there. The one question I have is because I'm likely to play so few hands in a live setting, Against any particular opponent in any given session, how many data points do I need to feel confident to pull the trigger? And I know that's going to be it depends, but how could I figure out what my it depends really is?
0: Yeah. And if anyone's interested in that, I mean, one interesting interview I did was of Brian Rast, which, if if listeners know, is he's a very respected, high stakes player. And, you know, I, I had an interesting interview with him talking about how, like, you know, he was talking about playing like, deuce to seven triple draw you know which is a very a game of very low information you know you're 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 basing your decisions very quickly a, a bunch of decisions on like if uh spots where you just don't have that much information you only know like how much they drew you know and and how much they bet or whatever or or, or if they bet or not it's we're talking limit here so it's if they bet or not uh but i think he, yeah so he was talking about how like he thought tells and behavior played a big role in his game even if he didn't even know the conscience decisions why he was basing things on because he would make you you make so many close decisions in those games. And he was like, well, if I if I just get a little inkling that someone's a little bit uncomfortable for whatever reason, it makes me more likely to call them or bet or whatever. Yeah, he was getting at that at the, at that fact that the, the closer the decisions are, the more meaningful even like small pieces of information can be. Yeah,
2: I mean, that, that what that says to me is that you will never make up for poor mechanics with tells you know, in the modern poker era, you've got people who are equally good in the mechanics of the game. And that's becoming easier and easier every day. There's more and more information out there. There's more training sites. There's so much information from solvers. You don't even have to have a solver to get that information because people are pretty much posting that information out there for people to glean. And when everybody is equal at the table, which I know is a rarity, but I mean, like, if you've got equally skilled players, that's when this is going to be really beneficial. That's going to give you a little edge over your competition, but it won't make up for poor mechanics. One of the things that's interesting about you, Zach, is um, the trajectory you've taken here since being a professional poker player. And then you write these books, then you're outing fake websites, and, and now you've moved on to the People Who Read People podcast. And I've been listening to that since the beginning. And lately, that is. Turned into a lot of examination of the polarization of America. And I, first of all, I'm trying to find an excuse to talk you into letting me on that show someday. <laughs> but I, I don't have the qualifications of all the people that you have on here. But it's fascinating and, and very interesting to me. And uh, I want to give you an opportunity to share what you're doing there. I think I see it as good, positive work because there's this extreme uh, stuff that goes on in this country right now. That the interesting thing is, I, know that we disagree on a bunch of stuff but i know that you and i could sit down and have a respectful and nuanced conversation about it and be able to leave that having respect for each other and that's the huge thing that i i hear in your podcast is that that's something that our two super divided sides that we're dealing with don't have
0: yeah i think it's uh i just kind of found myself randomly focusing on this and it's like once i started going down the rabbit hole i was like well i must i must just keep going because it's I think it is important like you're saying it's like our inability to recognize that people have very different beliefs than us and there can be understandable reasons and rational reasons for why they have those beliefs. And uh I think the thing that get it gets down to for me is uh pe- people don't I think a lot of people just don't understand how common these dynamics are of polarization. It's like many other countries have gone through these things in the in the same dynamics that we're going through just with different issues. Many other countries are currently going through these things. And there may be elements of modern life, like the fact that we're so you know isolated from each other socially, and the fact that we spend so much time online, there may be these elements that are even amplifying it beyond like the fact that it's a natural dynamic. The thing that gets me is just so many people act as if they're fighting this good versus evil battle. But I think I and 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 people who have studied polarization would say that is the fundamental nature of how polarization affects us. Like we always feel no matter what the issues are that a country is polarized around, they so many people feel that they're fighting this good versus evil battle. And it's our it's our anger, it's our visceral disgust at the other group that each side starts to have more and more that is the root cause of these things. It's not like we're angry just about these issues. And the issues are hugely important. I mean, the issues can be important, but at the root cause to me is like this visceral anger and disgust we have with each other, which boils up as like these issues become life and death because we feel we're fighting some good versus evil you know, battle. So to me, it's like understanding the more we understand this root psychological, emotional cause of how these things play out, the more depolarizing and and the less anger we have, because I think understanding that and, and seeing how the other side, the realities start to diverge, but like both sides have these things that they see as true. And it's, and it's completely understandable why that is. It's, it's uh it's just a, it's a natural process. And, and the more you can try to understand how those other people are seeing things, like how they see your side is the scary side. Like that's important to do to me to you know to to see, be able to see how your side is scary for example like that's very important and and not many people obviously want to do that because they feel like doing that gives the other side points or means that the other side may be right so there's many reasons why people don't want to do that and, but that's what we're dealing we're we're dealing with that struggle of like people understandably don't want to do that because it makes them uncomfortable it scares them For various reasons, and so we continue down the road of like more and more us versus them thinking. Yeah, Um,
2: I I don't even know how to respond to that. Um, That's that's a lot of information there. You know what I'll say is that I really enjoy it. This is not a political podcast, and I don't want to get too much into it. Other than to say that if you're listening now and you haven't listened to Zach's podcast, you should. It's got a lot of valuable information. I I really enjoy it, and thank you for the work you're doing there. And
0: certainly, we will put a link to that in our show notes. Thank you. That means a lot for real. Cause I don't, I don't get that many people. I, I get a lot of hate from both sides as you may have noticed, but I, I so I don't get that many people thanking me. So I appreciate it.
2: Well, if it helps any Zach, I hate both sides.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, if anybody, uh, if anybody <laughs> feels the same way, they'll definitely
1: appreciate my podcast. BJ, do you have anything more for Zach? I find it fascinating that the trajectory you've taken in your poker career to this behavioral context going towards the polarization of society, has direct implications to what Dell and I often preach on this podcast, that you can become better at life by becoming better at poker and vice versa. The more that we incorporate behavioral tells into our game, the more that we connect with those people on an individual basis, the better we will be able to make those decisions where they might be on the cusp of call or fold or some big decision. We can tip the scales in our favor because of those behaviors we can also tip the scales in our favor for interpersonal relationships when we take the time to understand why they believe what they believe and not necessarily try to convince them that we're right and they're wrong and we're good and they're evil but really to understand each other and by understanding each other that's really how we grow as a society and to del's point you can hate both sides and still live in a world with both sides because you have that basis of understanding.
0: Yeah. I, I just think like you said about, um, I think there is something to poker making us better at life because it does, it just does get into so many strategies and, and thought processes that I think are valuable for life. Like leaving aside the tells behavior stuff.
1: Thank you, Zach, for joining us. Do you have any final words before we close out the show? It's been great having you on.
0: Thank you all for, um, for talking to me. And it was
1: nice meeting y'all. Yeah. Take care. Thanks for joining me, Del. It's been awesome as always. See you next week, (laughs) BJ. And until next week, stick to the plan, and may all your variants be positive. This has been The Blind Stealing the Blinds, a
0: podcast by students of the game for students of the game. If you haven't already done so, consider subscribing. And when you're not counting your chips, take a moment to leave the guys a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get yours.